to Even Darker. I'm so glad you're here. Having always been fascinated by fairy tales, mythical creatures, mythology, folk tales, and legends, I wanted to create a podcast about these exact stories. In each episode, Chris Gordon, Jay Stinnett, or Damian Drake will tell us a story. Then I, Regina Drake, will review the points of the story I found most interesting, shocking, or downright unforgivable. Allow me to show you the origins of things even darker. Take heed, these are in the original early content, not the Big Mouse versions. No shade on him, but this is not for the young. Excited to announce our edition of Mythical Moments of Mythology with Karen Ellinger. Finally, we are going to get a dose of mythology. My favorite. For our 24th episode, we are going to do a deep dive on Snow White and Rose Red. This comes to us from Germany. The author is Jesse Wilcox Smith, the year 1911. And now for our story. Snow White and Rose Red are two little girls living with their mother, a poor widow, in a small cottage by the woods. Snow White is quiet and shy and prefers to spend her time indoors. Doing housework and reading, Rose Red is outspoken, lively, and cheerful and prefers to be outside. They are both very good girls who love each other and their mother dearly, and their mother is very fond of them as well. One night, there is a knock at the door. Rose Red opens the door to find a bear. At first she is terrified, but the bear tells her not to be afraid. I am half frozen, and I merely want to warm up a little bit at your place, he says. They let the bear in, and he lies down in front of the fire. Snow White and Rose Red beat the snow off the bear, and they quickly become quite friendly with him. They play with the bear and roll around playfully, and they let the bear spend the night in front of the fire. In the morning, he leaves trotting out the door into the woods. The bear comes back every night for the rest of the winter and the family grows used to it. When summer comes, the bear tells him that he must go away for a while to guard his treasure from the wicked dwarf. During the summer, when the girls are walking through the forest, they find a dwarf whose beard is stuck in a tree. The girls rescue him by cutting the beard free from the tree, but the dwarf is ungrateful and yells at them for cutting his beautiful beard. The girls encounter the dwarf several times that summer and rescue him from the same peril each time, for which he is very ungrateful. Then, one day, they meet the dwarf once again. This time, he is terrified because the bear is about to kill him. The dwarf pleads with the bear and begs it to eat the girls. Instead, the bear pays no heed to his plea and kills the dwarf with one swipe of his massive paw. Instantly, the bear turns into a prince. 
The dwarf had previously put a spell on the prince by stealing his precious stones and turning him into a bear. The curse is broken with the death of the dwarf. Snow White marries the prince and Rose Red marries the prince's brother. Hey, what girl doesn't want to roll around with the bear in front of the fire? I guess this is one bear that doesn't bear. That's a nod and a wink to Patrick and Jillian over at True Crime Obsessed. Actually, I have an incredible fear mixed with fascination of bears. Starting with the movie The Bear, fed by The Edge, and finished off by The Revenant. The Grizzly Man story, I had to ignore it. It's an automatic thing I do with insane people. Um, shouldn't the bear in the story be hibernating, though? Or maybe it's a hint that this bear isn't as he appears. Well, I guess if you're a bear, an enchanted bear, you just do whatever you want anyway, not even heeding nature. This story is not related to the Brothers Grimm fairy tale Snow White. Check out episode three. Or the Big Mouse 1937 animated film. Setting aside Snow White's name is in the title and the story, plus the similarities of the fair-skinned girl and a dwarf, it's understandable there would be some confusion. Sure glad the prince had a brother for Rose Red. There is an older version of the story, but try as I may, I couldn't find a copy of it. Only summary references, such as follows. It's called The Ungrateful Dwarf, and it is by Caroline Stahl and published in 1818. Two impoverished sisters run into a dwarf and help him out of numerous difficulties while trying to ignore his rudeness and bad temper. The romantic element, later introduced by the Grimm's, has no part in this version, and the bear only shows up at the end when he kills the dwarf. After the death of the dwarf, the girls take his treasure and go on to live a wealthy life. Hmm. The original is a bit more empowering for women, so let's bury that version. Some truly weird information I came across. Remember how the dwarf is incensed by the girls cutting off his beard to help him out? One source asserts the parallel between the dwarf and Orthodox Jewish men who place great importance on their beards. I feel the need to interject that I know plenty of beard-growing men Though I'm unaware of what their chosen faith, they are emotionally tied to those beards. As promised, now for even darker. The Winged Wolf a prince named Leventi sets out to seek a bride. His two brothers have gone before him, 
but never returned. Now it is his turn. On the road he meets an old beggar, and in exchange for a gift, he learns that he is about to come to a fork in the road. If he takes the path on the right, he'll die, but his horse will live. If he takes the one on the left, he will live, but lose his horse. And if he chooses the middle path, the winged wolf will tear him apart like it did his two brothers. The prince wants to go and fight the monster, but he is warned that the winged wolf breathes a blue fire that can melt ordinary weapons like wax. The old beggar tells the Vente how he can find himself a magic horse and sends the prince to his sister, who tells him how to come by a magic fairy sword. For the horse, he has to go to a mountain in the east, on top of which there is a castle made of ice and magic horse. For the horse, he has to go to a mountain far in the east, on top of which there is a castle made of ice and a magic horse, eating golden hay from a golden throat. It rears up at the stranger, but Levente tells him the magic words. I am the one you have been waiting for for a thousand years. Riding the horse, he makes his way through the snow-covered mountains in the west to a blue palace with twelve doors. The magic words. By the ten nails long beard of the mighty fairy king, open the gates. The gates open. Behind each door there are monsters, but the words, I was sent here by fate. I won't let anyone stand in the way. Tame them, and Levente walks through all the way into the inner chamber. In the middle chamber, there is a fairy sword in a diamond box, guarded by a three-headed dragon. Levente has a vial of fairy water from the old woman and sprinkles it onto the dragon, making it slumber. The dragon only catches up with him for some time later, at which point Levente uses the fairy sword to kill it. Making his way to the fork in the road, Levente takes the middle path and finds the lair of the winged wolf. After a long and hard battle, he finds a vulnerable spot under the left wing and brings down the wolf. In exchange for his life, the winged wolf offers to be Levente's steed and helper and takes him to a place where he can find the water of life to bring back his brothers. The water of life can be found in a place that belongs to a princess. She was so beautiful that the fairies grew jealous of her and made her fall into eternal sleep. The entire place is wrapped in strings with bells attached. Levente has to get in and out without ringing any of them. The winged wolf also warns him not to fall in love. But as Levente is on his way out with the water of life, he happens to take a walk through the palace and finds the slumbering princess. He immediately falls in love, and when he climbs on the winged wolf back, he is suddenly too heavy to fly. The wolf leg catches on the strings, and as an army appears out of nowhere, Levente slays all the soldiers. But a second army appears. He slays those two also, and then the princess wakes up and sends the soldiers to bring him back. They start for home happily together. On the way, they stop at the winged wolf lair, where Levente sprinkles the water of life on the bones of his brothers and brings them back to life. But on their way to their parents, the two older brothers conspire to murder Levente, 
dragging the princess away. The winged wolf and the magic horse bring a vial of water of life, sprinkle it on Levante, and he wakes up immediately. He makes it home just in time to see his brothers squabbling over who gets to marry the princess. The brothers are punished, and everyone else lives happily ever after. This is a Hungarian folktale. I'm not finding a date, but this story has everything. Castles made of ice, magic horses, fairy swords, in diamond boxes, no less. And drama. Brothers dying and princesses being kidnapped, monsters being fought. Jeez, who knew falling in love makes you heavy? Never mind. I'm looking down at my waist. Look away. Look away. And I found it funny that Levante, that's what I want to call him, but I think it's Levant, says the magic words. I am the one you have been waiting for, for a thousand years. And it wasn't to a princess, but a horse. <laughs> uh, I'm told there is a shorter version. Sorry, Damien. But it has no brothers, and the winged wolf is a guard of the princess and has to be killed in that version. Boo. So, is the winged wolf real? Hungarians that reached the Carpathian Basin, which, by the way, is Dracula's address, though in fact the Carpathians are two mountain ranges. There is the upper and the lower. Anyway, these Hungarians described in the conquest era of the 9th and 10th century, uh, there were decorative motives they found, and they called them the winged wolves. In Persian tradition, they were called peacock dragons. Sadly, there is no way to prove that folktales gathered in the 19th and or the 20th century have anything in common with mythical animals popular a thousand years ago. But I'll leave you with this. I was sent here by fate. I won't let anyone stand in my way. And now for our weekly installment of Pinocchio. Pinocchio, Chapter 19 If the marionette had been told to wait a day instead of 20 minutes, the time could not have seemed longer to him. He walked impatiently to and fro and finally turned his nose toward the field of wonders. And as he walked with hurried steps, his heart beat with an excited tick, tack, tick, tack, just as if it were a wall clock, and his busy brain kept thinking, what if instead of a thousand I should get two thousand or if instead of two thousand I should find five thousand or one hundred thousand 
I built myself a beautiful palace with a thousand stables, with thousand wooden horses to play with, a cellar overflowing with lemonade and ice cream and soda, and a library of candles and fruits and cookies. There he stopped to see if by any chance he could see what he wanted in the fields of dreams with the gold coins in sight. But he saw nothing. He took a few steps forward and still nothing. He stepped into the field. He went up to the place where he dug the hole and buried the gold pieces. Again, nothing. Pinocchio became very thoughtful. And forgetting his good manners altogether, he pulled a hand out of his pocket and gave his head a thorough scratching. As he did so, he heard a hearty burst of laughter close to his head. He turned sharply, and there, just above him, on the branch of a tree, sat a large parrot, busily preening his feathers. What are you laughing at? Pinocchio asked peevishly. I'm laughing because... In preening my feathers, I tickled myself under the wings. The Marriott did not answer. He walked to the brook, filled his shoe with water, and once more sprinkled the ground which covered the gold pieces. Another burst of laughter, even more impertinent than the first, was heard in the quiet field. Well, cried the marionette angrily this time, may I know, Mr. Parrot, what amuses you so? I'm laughing at those simpletons who believe everything they hear and who allow themselves to be caught so easily in the trap set for them. Mm, Do you perhaps mean me? I certainly do, poor Pinocchio. You, who are such a little silly as to believe that gold can be sown into a field like beans or squash. I too believed that once, and today I'm very sorry for it. Today... I've reached the conclusion that in order to come by money honestly, one must work and know how to earn it with hand or brain. I don't know what you're talking about, said the marionette, who was beginning to tremble with fear. Too bad. I'll explain myself better, said the parrot. While you were away in the city, the fox and the cat returned here in a great hurry. They took the four gold pieces which you had buried and ran away as fast as the wind. If you catch them, you're a brave one. Pinocchio's mouth opened wide. He could not believe the parrot's words and began to dig furiously at the earth. He dug and dug until the hole was as big as himself, but no money was there. Every penny was gone. In desperation, he ran to the city and went straight to the courthouse to report the robbery to the magistrate. The judge was a monkey, a large gorilla, venerable with age. A flowing white beard covered his chest, and he wore gold-rimmed spectacles from which the glasses he had dropped out. The reason for wearing these, he said, was that his eyes had been weakened by the work of many years. Pinocchio, standing before him, told his pitiful tale word by word. He gave the names and descriptions of the robbers and begged for justice. The judge listened to him with great patience. A kind look shone in his eye, and he became very much interested in the story. He felt moved. He he almost wept. When the marionette had no more to say, the judge put out his hand and rang a bell. 
At the sound, two large mastiffs appeared, dressed in carabiners' uniforms. And then the magistrate, pointing to Pinocchio, said in a very solemn voice, This poor simpleton has been robbed of four gold pieces. Take him, therefore, and throw him into prison. The marionette, on hearing this sentence, passed upon him, was thoroughly stunned. He tried to protest, but the two officers clapped their paws on his mouth and hustled him away to jail. There he had to remain four long, weary months. And if it had not been for a very lucky chance, he probably would have been able to stay there even longer. For, my dear children, you must know that it happened just then that the young emperor who ruled the city of Simple Simons had gained a great victory over his enemy, and in celebration thereof he'd ordered illuminations, fireworks, shows of all kind, and best of all, the opening of all prison doors. If the others go, I go too, said Pinocchio to the jailer. Not you, answered the jailer. You're one of those. I beg your pardon, interrupted Pinocchio. I too am a thief. Oh, in that case, you're free to go, said the jailer. Taking off his cap, he bowed low, opened the door of the prison, and Pinocchio ran out and away and never looked backward. So the jig is up. Field of dreams, field of nightmares, and Pinocchio gets thrown in jail for being grifted. Wow, that was, I didn't see that coming. And, and luckily, four months later, the government's in a good mood and they open the doors. Yay, these Italians, they're great. Now for our new segment. Mythical Moments in Mythology with Karen Ellinger. In 2019, while studying a 2,700-year-old Assyrian cuneiform tablet describing ancient medical treatments, the researcher Trells Pank Arbel of the University of Copenhagen came across an unusual figure on the back of the tablet. Investigating the crude drawing, he soon made out that it was a figure with horns, a lizard or snake's tongue, and more than one tail. According to the text, the Assyrians associated this crudely depicted demon with a dreaded illness they called Banu, which modern medicine believes to be what we now call epilepsy. Arbel had found an epilepsy demon. The Assyrian peoples lived in Mesopotamia, in what is now northern Iraq, south of the modern city of Mosul. Their civilization flourished between 2000 and 600 BC, a time in which they established an advanced civilization to which had two great empires and what is thought to be the first professional military. The cuneiform system of writing uses symbology to represent a complete word or sound. Cuneiform is notoriously difficult to interpret, and only a small number of specialists can do so accurately. Arbel's discovery of this figure helps us to better understand the Mesopotamian era, a time when medicine and magic were one. Assyrians believed that disease and illnesses were caused by supernatural beings, gods, or dark magic. Their healers were responsible for expelling these supernatural forces and the symptoms they caused by the use of crude drugs, rituals, or incantations. 
In ancient Mesopotamia, what we would now call exorcisms were skills taught in temple schools using similar cuneiform tablets. These temples may be thought of as the world's first medical schools. Two of the primary evils exercised routinely by ancient healers were Pazuzu, whom you might remember being depicted in William Peter Blatty's book and film The Exorcist, or the evil Mesopotamian goddess Lamachu, who would steal babies from their mother's breast. There were major and minor demons associated with any number of ailments. Assyrians and Babylonians believed that there was a connection between the moon and epilepsy and insanity. Modern words such as lunacy and lunatic carry on this postulation. This particular nameless epilepsy demon was thought to act on behalf of the lunar god Sin. It would project horrifying symptoms into the human body. Seizures, tremors, unconsciousness. The afflicted would flail about, shake, and cry like a goat. Actual drawings of demons and spirits are very rare on cuneiform tablets, which were more like textbooks. They usually appeared on bronze plaques, which were talismans used to help expel demons. Typically, the healer would not have drawn the figure of the demon who caused a specific illness, and this makes the find so important. Arbel is quoted as saying that this is the first time that we have managed to connect one of the very rare illustrations of demons in the medical text with the specific disease epilepsy. This chance discovery shows that ancient ideas about healing were very influential down through the centuries. Moreover, it adds to our knowledge of Assyrian beliefs about the supernatural and healing. The end. This is so spooky on so many levels that a belief from 2000 BC to 6000 BC epilepsy being caused by a demon, that this idea could still prevail in the darkest corners of our minds, or should I say our culture? Azuzu, oh my God, yikes. Drawing a demon, that doesn't seem to be the best idea. I feel my superstitiousness trying to push aside the modern woman that sits before the mic. Curiosity killed the podcaster? Possibly. I asked Karen to send me a picture of the tablet. If you're interested, you can give it a goog and look for the tablet, picture of the tablet showing epilepsy demon. Hope you enjoyed this episode of Even Darker. Please review and follow us. If you'd like to support us, do it! I'd love to hear your feedback, so leave a voice message if you are so inclined. I want to thank two of my most favorite men on this planet, Damian Drake and Jay Stinnett, for being our storytellers. And give an even darker welcome to Karen Ellinger. Even Darker is made with Anchor and can be found on Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcast platforms. <laughs>